First up, it's Rapa, Wednesday the 5th of October, Cornick Truebridge Ho. Coming up, golfer Ryan Fox on his $1.5 million win at the home of golf. Green MP Chloe Swarbrick discusses her alcohol harm minimisation bill. Why so much opposition from both sides of the house? Take an extra jersey when you head out this morning. It's going to be chilly. Weatherman Philip Duncan tells us what it'll be like where you are. And vendors who sell their wares at the Armageddon Expo say its cancellation could spell the end of days for their businesses while cosplayers despair. To lose this is heartbreaking. It's the highlight of my year and it's so, so sad to see it go. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge in for Nathan, who is uh, still holding down the fort on the first week of school holidays. Uh, good luck to him. He's doing God's work. Uh, and it is, of course, Wednesday morning, so that means we will go across the Tasman first for the latest from Pam Corkery, who's got up at 2am just for us, as she always does. Good morning, Pam. Yeah, morning, uh, Nick. Good to talk to you. <laughs> you as well. Uh, let's start with the Nick Kyrgios assault case. It's been adjourned. Uh, what's going on there? Well, he's been granted time to have a mental health assessment, um, and the case will resume in February. Kyrgios is alleged to have assaulted his former girlfriend earlier last year. Now, he's currently in Japan, at the Japan Open, and his lawyer cited a number of public statements made by Kyrgios about his mental health. You know, he said the 2019 Open was one of the darkest of his lives, uh, of his life. Uh, here's a quote from Kyrgios. I was lonely, depressed, negative, abusing alcohol, drugs, pushed away by family and friends. Um, you know, who hasn't been there? A lot of people have been there without allegedly bashing their girlfriend. Honestly, he gets on my work so much. His behaviour during the US Open, spitting on people, screaming at his team, was appalling. I think they need to fix him before he goes out in public again. He needs to be he seems like the kind of soul that needs looking after Pam. Uh, he really does and mm. I don't even care if it's a, a suit that ties up at the back of his um, <laughs> body. You know, honestly mm. he's, he's just a, I find him just a pig and also this has taken so long to get to court this case and you just see where stars get a bit of an easier run in the justice system here, I believe. Let's go to this Optus breach, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, really, but it's not just (laughs) Optus that was hacked. It couldn't. Honestly, as you said, the gift that keeps on giving, it's millions of people are dealing with this. Now, Optus, of course, is really under the gun from the government. It hasn't been that cooperative um, in sharing information with the government and letting them work together. But Telstra and the National Australia Bank have had their names and email addresses of current and former employees accessed by hackers as well. So it's up to 30,000 names and email addresses of past and present Telstra staff. Um, and it seems to be, you know, sort of trying to um, capitalise from from hackers on the Optus breach, but it's not as 
serious this stuff. I mean, Telstra is talking it down, saying, you know, it's not really a Telstra data breach. Um, the, the data contains staff names, names and email addresses. It's from way back in 2017. It's six years old. But, you know, there's still 12,800 people work there out of the 30,000 names leaked and honestly if you could see at the weekends around the country there's footages, footage of people queuing up to get new driver's license new um, passports which are now being paid for by um, Optus, I mean people are really shaken by this and they're getting texts, they're called proactive personal notifications but they said they, they get a text at people who have been hacked and they have a, a level from one to four of how serious it is and you might be a one so that's okay and then you'll get a text the, the, that afternoon saying well no now we've got you at a three people are really freaking out over this yeah and all good and well for Telstra to play it down right uh, yep. house prices are falling over your side of the ditch uh, how's that working out for buyers well, I wanted to say too, because, you know, I have Australia and New Zealand mates and they say, oh, my house price has fallen. And I go, well, it's happening everywhere, not in New Zealand, but it's the fifth yeah. consecutive month that values have fallen in all cities except Darwin, all capital cities. And that's after six months of rate, uh, rate hikes. Sydney's the biggest and property owners are making a loss because they're reselling in order to escape high interest rates. So this comes as the Reserve Bank lifted the cash rate yesterday again, the sixth rise in six months, and they're saying there's more to come. So it's pretty grim here. Uh, but the Premier of New South Wales, uh, Dominic Perrottet, he said homeowners should remain confident. The government will stand with them. They'll make sure every single person gets through this difficult time. I don't know what is he going to round and chat to them. I don't think he'll be looking after every single person. Yeah. He's weird. <laughs> Seems like a uh, seems like he could be spreading himself a little bit thin there. Uh, hey, thank you, Pam. Pam Corkery joining us there from Australia as she does every Wednesday morning. And we are going to stay in Australia actually, uh, because if we thought our GP woes were bad, Australia is also in the midst of a health crisis. GPs there are warning Australians will miss out on basic care as well if they don't get a financial boost. A crisis meeting will be held in Canberra today. To discuss greater access to after-hours care and more nurses to stop experienced doctors from leaving the sector, the ABC's Stephanie Smale reports. Getting an appointment with a GP, let alone one that bulk bills, is already hard enough, particularly in rural and regional Australia. But Professor Karen Price from the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners warns it's likely to get worse. There is a GP crisis. We've got GPs leaving in the middle of their careers to find other work. We've got GPs bringing forward their retirement. The way that we are working is not working for patients and it's not working for doctors. Professor Price will be raising two main priorities as doctors, consumer groups, government representatives and academics meet in Canberra this week to work out ways to help the flagging sector. She explains there needs to be a bigger chunk of Australia's GDP spent on general practice and a federal funding model set up for GPs. We've got to have one health system and it's got to be administered as one health system and that way the hospitals will be incentivised to recognise that general practice is a really good partner to align patients with and there is a much better and smoother transition between those levels of care. 
The Australian Medical Association has a plan too, with seven ideas to support general practice, including funding for more after-hours care and getting more medical attention for aged care residents. It's absolutely critical that we understand that general practice spending is an investment and not a cost. And if we invest in general practice, it will help ease the logjam and the enormous pressures on public hospitals by keeping Australians healthy and keeping them out of hospital. That's the AMA President, Professor Steve Robson. He explains funding more nurses at doctors' clinics would make a big difference too. It's now time to change the financial funding models for general practice to make it uh, financially viable and sustainable in this country. We need to make sure that if we do have general practitioners that they are at their peak of productivity and we can do that by surrounding them with a team of people who can provide care for patients and make each general practitioner highly productive. Professor Karen Price from the Royal Australian College of GPs agrees extending the hours that patients can access doctors makes sense. They remove the funding and then all the GP clinics stop providing after-hours care and then they go, oh my goodness, we need it. Um, and they bring something back which is a misshapen form, a distortion of what really is needed. And what's needed is just reinstate the funding for after-hours care. It's pretty simple. And she's confident the federal government is open to change. Well, they really kind of have to because um, if general practice falls over, then the whole health system falls over. So this is that's why it's a crisis. We, we have got areas of Australia without access to healthcare and we've got a prediction models that show that that will continue across Australia. And we know what happens if you don't have general practice. So if the government wants to spend more money on chasing after, uh, you know, other solutions other than general practice, they'll end up spending a lot more. And that, that's an issue for every Australian taxpayer. Professor Karen Price from the Royal Australian College of GPs ending that report from the ABC's Stephanie Smale. It is just coming up quarter past five in the morning. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge. We are keen for your feedback, as we are every morning. Uh, we're going to have something on weather a little bit later. It's going to get cold. So we want to know, are you still prepared for the cold, or is your winter jersey already back in its drawer? Uh, are there any Armageddon fans out there? Are you disappointed about the cancellation there? And I was reading an article yesterday about... Eden Park being on, well, I'm not sure the cusp, but approaching sellout status for, of course, that big opening day of the uh, Women's Rugby World Cup. So have you got your tickets to that? Are you planning on going along? Uh, You can text us, as always, on 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. We're also on Facebook and we're on Instagram at firstuprnz. Uh, Iran's Ayatollah is blaming the West, the US and Israel for ongoing protests there. We'll get an update on that in just a moment. From Doha is our correspondent Alex Baird. Morena, Alex. Kia Nick. Let's start, uh, we'll go to, go to Iran in a second, but let's start with uh, 2022 looking like a record breaker for Palestinian mm. deaths. Yeah, awful stuff. It seems that this is the, going to be the highest year since 2015 um, for the number of Palestinians who have been killed in the occupied West Bank and occupied East Jerusalem. I think it's really important to consider here what that occupied actually means. These are areas uh, that have been set aside for a Palestinian state. They've essentially been under a military occupation for decades by Israel. And as such, many of these areas are really un- are operating under a kind of martial law concept. Um, we've just seen a lot of people being 
stopped this year and killed, especially most of those being killed um, during forced demolitions of houses, during um, the searching of houses. Just last week, we had one who was killed in the Janine refugee camp. Um, and this is really, I mean, when you, when, you, when you hear these sorts of stories, it seems really unreasonable. Uh, one person was killed when um, Israeli forces were about to search a house and to warn them, warn them that they were about to search this house, they hit us with an anti-tank missile. And that's what killed an 18-year-old boy. And then we've had people like Al Jazeera's Shireen Abu Akleh shot in the uh, shot a sniper in the head. Uh, reviews have found that that was done on purpose. And, and you're just hearing of these sorts of stories happening more and more frequently. Um, there are deaths on both sides. It's important to note, but it's very unbalanced. As you've got a, one side um, is rather the Israeli state, which is very highly militarized and has huge capabilities. And on the other side, you have Palestinians. And to be fair, there are Palestinian militias. There are missiles being fired into Israel. But it's just a huge power imbalance. So unfortunately, looking like this year is going to be the year with the most deaths of Palestinians since 2015. Yeah, and in the meantime, there's an update on the situation in Yemen. What's going on there? Yes. So it <laughs> not very make, doesn't make very cheery listening, I hate Certainly to say it. Doesn't. But Yemen has – no – um, Yemen has been at war within itself for years, and it's essentially become a proxy war. You've got rebels called the Houthis who are controlling huge parts of the country, who are supported by other actors outside of the country. And then you have um, those who are fighting the Houthis, who are backed by Saudi Arabia, who are backed by UAE. And this has basically led to a crisis in Yemen, a humanitarian disaster, which is the worst in the world at the moment. You have millions of people living in a constant state of food insecurity, Poverty is at record levels. But Yemen had had a slight reprieve. For the last six months, when mediated truce um, had been holding. But this lull in fighting, which is the longest lull in fighting in eight years, um, has suddenly come to an end. And uh, there hasn't necessarily been an escalation in fighting yet. But because this truce is over, everyone's basically just waiting to see who first. The UN had pushed for an extension to the truce. Um, but there'd been this impasse. Yet millions of Yemenis are sitting there, millions of Yemenis who aren't involved in the fighting sitting there, are basically starving, wondering when this war is going to end. And sadly, looks like it's just going to escalate once again. And we will go to Iran lastly. Uh, the protests there are still happening, aren't they? Yeah, so this has been happening for weeks now. To remind those of you at home who may have forgotten, uh, the protests came out after the death of a young woman called Masa Amini. She was a Kurdish Iranian woman. Uh, she wasn't wearing her hijab, hijab correctly, was arrested by the morality police and died in police custody. And this has caused widespread protests, spread to every single province in Iran, protests around the world supporting women's rights in Iran. And this has become the largest now a protest movement in Iran in many, 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 many years. Uh, dozens, though, have been killed. More than 1,500 people have now been arrested. The supreme leader of Iran has said they're heartbroken, but then turned around and is blaming the U.S. and Israel for the protest action, so claiming that the West is stoking this unrest in Iran. Um, there have been more demonstrations, including at a top Tehran university in the last couple of days, and the United States is now threatening more costs on Iran. You've got to remember that Iran is already facing a number of sanctions from the states. And the states are saying, hey, you're possibly putting down peaceful protests. We're going to impose more actions upon you. Mm. Uh, it's not looking like these protest actions are going to stop anytime soon. So it'll be interesting to see if anything concrete happens, especially for women 
and Iran out of this. Mm. Hey, thanks, Alex. Alex Beard joining us there from the Middle East. It's just coming up 21 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trowbridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we'll have Chloe Swarbrick on about uh, opposition to her alcohol harm minimisation bill. I rang up this morning. It's going to be a cold one. We'll have more on the weather. And the cancellation of Armageddon has vendors out of pocket. We're going to trade me now a little bit of the American South, but in Greytown. And one of the oddest listings in a while, but perfect for Halloween, it's a porcelain mortuary table. It's a bit weird, but first producer Jeremy Parkinson talks to Trade Me's Ruby Topsand about a soccer jersey raising money for research into a cure for the brain cancer DIPG. October 1 marked the one-year anniversary of Jemima Gasly's passing. Jemima was diagnosed with an incurable brain cancer, DIPG, and it is, there is no cure for this one, and it's actually the, the leading cause of cancer death in children. So in her final months, Jemima did incredible work to raise money to do more research regarding the cancer that that she was diagnosed with, and she raised over $700,000, which is just so extraordinary. This Phoenix jersey was won originally by Ebert Motor Group, but they have returned the jersey to Gasly Motors for them to re- uh, Lister on site and auction again to raise even more money towards Jemima's charity, which is called Jemima's Wish. And yeah, what a beautiful way to, to commemorate Jemima and celebrate all of the wonderful work she did and remember her on that anniversary of her passing. Yeah, I saw a quote uh, from her the other day, actually, which said that if she couldn't be cured of this cancer, then she could be part of the cure. Uh, and in, um, in raising $700,000 in the last few weeks of her illness, she's gone a long way towards that, I'd imagine. Yeah, truly a wonderful legacy there. What's the current bid on the uh, jersey? Currently sitting at $705 with 18 watch lists, but but a time on this one, it doesn't close till Sunday night at 9.49pm, so we may well see that jump up further. And our property listing this week is in Greytown. Um, this is a uh, property which you may recognise the lake from Lord of the Rings movies. That's right. It is a, one of the locations used in the Lord of the Rings films, so it might look familiar to any fans out there. But it has a lot more to offer than just its lake. This incredible 100-year-old mansion has over this is 10 bedrooms, eight bedrooms, and then another three bedrooms in the cottage um, next door. So it's got 11 bedrooms in total. The uh, gardens look quite British. They're beautifully kept and look so lovely and obviously have been upkept since it was built initially with that same kind of style in the garden. It's like the hedges and the roses are just stunning. But yeah, this one is is certainly getting a lot of attention and it's not a surprise. It's not often we see properties like this that of this size for sale and particularly not in Greytown. So really interested to see how this one goes when it is sold by deadline sale on November 3rd. Okay, look out for that one. And this one is just for October. Uh, buy it in time for Halloween. Weird as listing, but it's mortuary. Ta- it's a mortuary table with a current bid of seven hundred and fifty dollars. It is. That's exactly what it is. It has. This one appeared on site and just got so much interest 
it's amazing the way that these things happen. Sometimes somebody just lists something like this and New Zealand just finds it and absolutely loves it. And the Q&A here is a lot of fun as well. So great to see people having fun in there. But also it's got a current top bid of $750, 640 watch lists on it, which is really, like incredible. And then on top of that, we've it's had nearly 38,000 views but yes as as outlined in the description great for Halloween this one and the Q&A's that suggested it might be able to be used as a fishing table great for gutting fish do with it what you please hopefully this finds a good home it won't be mine I can tell you that that was Ruby Topsan from Trade Me Right, joining us now from our business team is Giles Beckford. Uh, morning, Giles. Morning, to you, Nick. Women on company boards, I've got a note here. What on that? Well, there's a study that uh, has come out of Otago University which suggests that if there's uh, an equal number of men and women or a majority of women on a company board, that they are... That company will give you a better insight into the way it's operating, into its finances, uh, because uh, women on the board tend to have a higher ethical standard uh, and they just don't take what the management tells them uh, as gospel, so that they're actually questioning the managers about the assumptions they make, about the decisions that they make and the way the business is going. So as an investor, as a shareholder, as a, as a KiwiSaver investor even, you know, it would seem that the companies with uh, equal or majority women on the board, you actually they perform better and the boards do better and the managers do better. And you'd have to say, that's an interesting one. You know, I spoke to the author of the study and I said, does that mean the blokes are all a bit, you know, take it for granted, a bit dodgy? She didn't quite want to go there in sort of playing up the gender divide, but just said women generally have, bring a, a higher ethical standard to any organisation that they're in generally and the dealings uh, that they have and the way they interact with people. Uh, and from that point of view, the quality of management, uh, supervision, um, decision-making is better overall. So there you have it. Look for companies that have women on boards. We have too few of them in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, and if you're a shareholder, get in behind a woman, a woman candidate and uh, you know, see it as a way of improving the quality of the company. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Giles. Uh, you can hear for, more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7 and turning to how the New Zealand dollar is being traded around the world. It's currently at 57 US cents, 88 Australian cents, 57 euro cents, 50 British pence, 4.07 yuan, 82.84 Japanese yen. Right, uh, we were talking about the black ferns earlier, and the current crop have the chance to do what no past team has done, and that's win the Rugby World Cup on home soil. Uh, the All Blacks did that, though. I guess we're talking about the women's game specifically, though, aren't we? The New Zealand women's team have won five of the nine editions of the tournament so far, but here we go. None of them have been held in Aotearoa. That's why they haven't done it. They are the reigning champions, but they're not the favourites to win this time around, with England considered the team to beat. Coach Wayne Smith says he's preparing the Black Ferns for the pressure that comes with trying to defend a title. World Cups are different. Other tournaments or other um, test matches that you play... Particularly home World Cup, you know, there's, a, there's always a lot of pressure on. It's how you handle that pressure. 
not not so much early on, but in key games along the way, you're playing against teams that are going to be marching behind their flag, and you've got to meet that. You've got to meet that level of intensity. You've got to be able to handle the pressure when the pressure comes on in those games, and you have to train for that. So we've got a bit of work to do there, but you know we're um, we've put a lot of mahi into make sure that the girls are able to handle pressure and they have ways of um, doing that. Yeah, and I think through the tournament we'll, we'll improve in that area. Smith concedes the Black Ferns can't compete in a traditional Fords-dominated set-piece battle with the European side, so he's installed a more expansive speed and skill-based game plan. He's confident the hosts will be able to hold their own should the conditions not suit running rugby. We encountered that a wee bit in pack four and that we never had a dry game. The first game against Aussie was horrendously wet, field was muddy. Same the next game against Canada and then it poured all game up in Whangarei against USA. So you've got to adapt a wee bit clearly, but we don't want to get caught into an arm wrestle with those Northern Hemisphere teams. They showed last year what where their strengths lie. And so you've got to have alternative strategies rather than just kicking a ball out, for example, and giving them a line-out opportunity, which they can drive from, get a penalty from the drive, kick it down the corner, get another penalty, drive for a try. You've got to break that cycle, so um, we'll have a plan B, and uh, hopefully we'll have some dry ground as well. The World Cup kicks off this Saturday at Eden Park, with South Africa playing France, England taking on Fiji, and then, of course, the Black Ferns playing Australia in a good old grudge match. If you haven't bought tickets and you're thinking about it, get along. Portia Woodman in full flight on the wing is something to behold, trust me. Uh, And something else to behold, New Zealand golfer Ryan Fox may miss out on next year's New Zealand Open following the biggest win of his career. But it's not all bad news because Fox won the Alfred Dunhill Lynx Championship in Scotland over the weekend, beating the likes of Rory McIlroy, that's right, on his way to victory. The big-hitting Aucklander now moves to 25 in the world golf rankings. That is that is significant. That never happens to New Zealanders, very rarely. Uh, and will secure an invite to the coveted Masters, coveted Masters for the first time next April by finishing the year ranked in the world's 50 best players. Preparation for the Masters could see Fox skip the New Zealand event in favour of, lucra- of lucrative PGA Tour events in the States. I spoke with him following the win at the weekend and began by asking him where this one rates. Oh, I mean, this is easily the biggest for me. I mean, you look at the field that played this week. Oh, you know, obviously Rory was probably the headline of it, but it's such a well-respected tournament on the, the DP World European Tour. It's had so many great champions over the years, and you know, the pro-am format, everyone loves that about the event, and it's on three iconic courses, and obviously St Andrews and Kanu's Dan Kingsbarn, so this certainly tops the other two wins quite significantly. And, you know, to win a tournament at the home of golf is... is very special and something I'll never forget. Obviously, you climb the rankings and you get that Masters qualification as well. But I guess, how do you feel about that? And is your approach sort of, as a professional, specifically as a golfer, well, I'm only as good as my last event, or do you allow yourself to really try and just enjoy the moment? Oh, there's definitely some enjoy the moment in that regard. I mean, the Masters has been a big goal of mine since well before I turned pro, and I've ticked off all the other majors and you know, I've done quite a few of them now. And this is the first year I've got really close to getting a chance. And you know, obviously winning last week, I solidified that. There's no, no way I'll drop out of the top 50 by the end of the year. So to have that invite is, is pretty huge. And 
that certainly probably still hasn't sunk in yet. And you know, there's there's a lot of other things that'll come with it, not just the Masters, but there's a bunch of other big PGA Tour events at the start of next year that will have top 50 categories available. And again, with where I'm at the ranking, I'd have to do something exceptionally bad or be exceptionally unlucky not to qualify for a bunch of those at the beginning of next year as well. So that's a pretty cool cool thing to look forward to for next year and you know, thankfully I've got a week off to sort of let it all soak in. Yeah and I guess looking forward again, a, a slightly lesser event than the Masters certainly but uh, New Zealand Open, what are your chances of, of getting to that do you think? I actually don't know, I mean it was, it's definitely an event I want to put on my calendar every year and I just, I haven't even looked at what the schedule looks like next year um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a whole lot different now than what I ever thought it was going to be even a couple of months ago. So I'll be doing my utmost to get back for the New Zealand Open, but you know I can't confirm anything at the moment, but hopefully we'll be able to figure something out in the next couple of weeks and, and you know give those guys a heads up and, and also sort of make a bit of a plan for me knowing what's going on early next year. And I just say, you know, the support from back home, not just from last week, but from the whole year has been, my whole career has been amazing. So, you know, thanks to all of New Zealand for that and probably sorry for keeping you up in the middle of the night and ruining a couple of people's Monday mornings. I'm not sure he ruined people's Monday mornings. I think he probably made it. I'm just trying to think of the last New Zealand golfer inside the top 30. I guess it would be Michael Campbell years ago after that US Open win. It is it, it, it is a really significant milestone. Good on him. Uh, Ryan Fox, it is just coming up 5.39. I'm Nick Trubridge, you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, vendors for the Armageddon Expo say its cancellation could spell the end of days for their businesses while cosplayers despair. Green MP Chloe Swarbrick is also live with us to discuss her alcohol harm minimisation bill. Why so much opposition on both sides of the House? The professionals of Morning Report are up after six and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme is Susie Ferguson in Wellington. Morena Susie, is it, cl- is it cold down there? It looks like it's close to single digits, am I wrong? Oh, do you know, I've not actually left the house. I'm working from home today, so oh, I don't know. And going on the weather forecast, I'm not going to leave the house for the next 48 <laughs> no, hours, I don't think, eh? No, why would you? Uh, what, what's coming up? Well, we're going to be taking a look, certainly, at the situation with the weather. That cold front coming up from the south and snow expected. Uh, we'll be keeping you up to date with that. Also, taking a check-in on the situation with the cyber attack on Pinnacle Midlands Health. 450,000 patients uh, that could be affected here. It's not clear how many of them have had their data stolen as yet. Also taking a look at whether to ditch streaming in high schools. Be interested in your thoughts on that one, 2101, to get in touch with us. Uh, and also, of course, it is Wednesday. That means we'll be talking with Christopher Luxon a little bit later on the programme. It's all coming up after six. Thanks, Susie. Don't miss it, everyone. As uh, Susie says there, morning report coming up in oh, about bang on 16 minutes time Uh, right to the weather that Susie mentioned just then of course an icy front is due to grip parts of New Zealand today with snow down to levels expected on snow snow down to low levels sorry expected on both islands joining me now with the latest is weather watch forecaster Philip Duncan Morena Philip 
Good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, and I'm in a nice warm studio, so pretty well on that front. But how are temperatures looking at the moment? We just heard Peter in the news saying it's sounding bitterly cold down south. Yeah, that cold change has, has started. And in fact, you know, that we're still... Um, have the main sort of Antarctic part of it to come through, which is more today. So we've sort of got two systems here. We've got the first cold front, which uh, came in yesterday in the South Island and moving up the South Island and into the North Island today. And then we've got the second sort of colder burst, which comes in later today and tonight and into Thursday morning. Uh, But, yeah, temperatures are down now. You know, places like uh, Invercargill down to just two degrees at the moment. Um, Parts of uh, central Otago are just uh, dropping down below zero. It's nothing too extreme really just yet, but um, as the day wears on, people might realise that the temperatures aren't going to change from where they are now. So, you know, it's going to be very, very cold in Dunedin today, barely going up above four or five degrees probably. I don't know, Philip, as an Aucklander, two degrees in October sounds pretty extreme to me. Likewise, likewise, four Um, degrees in Dunedin. Except it's sort of, it's still like the sun's not up. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it's not too alarming yet, but what people will find is their temperatures during the day aren't probably going to change much from where we are now. So it's four degrees in Dunedin at the moment. The high is five, um, and tomorrow's mm. high is seven. Uh, so it, it is certainly going to be a cold uh, 24 to 36 hours, and there are parts of the lower South Island and the lower North Island that are going to have wind chill hovering around freezing or below it for more than 30 hours starting from today and, and this evening. So it's definitely a significant event, but it is short-lived. That's the positive part. Yeah, and I swear living in Tamaki Makoto does make you oh, a little bit soft. Can we still say that these days? I, I know it's uh, certainly changed my internal thermometer. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're we, we, we 16 today. That's not too bad. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Uh, hey, where's this coming from, Philip? Because as I say, we are in October, and how long do you expect it to stick around? So it is coming off the Antarctic ice shelf. So it is a proper polar Antarctic southerly. We don't get a lot of those very often at any time of the year, mostly because the Roaring Forties, that big belt of windy westerlies um, around the, the Southern Ocean and the South Island, tends to push it sideways past us and they you know, go out to the Chatham Islands or it heads off towards South America. Um, so this one's a significant polar southerly, comes all the way northwards. I mentioned before, you know, Auckland's 16 today, but tomorrow it's only 11. That's the daytime high. It's only a couple of degrees above the lowest ever October daytime high recorded. So it's definitely a cold day, but it bounces back to mild again on Friday. So um, in most places on Friday will wake up cold, but will warm up across the day to where they've been. And by the weekend, you know, places back into the mid to late teens in some areas. So it's, it is short-lived by about, about 48 hours for most places. Mm. And just very briefly, I see a note here from Niwa, uh, even going as far as to warn of real hypothermia risk to livestock and humans. Yeah, it's a bit dramatic because they also said if this was July, this would be normal a normal day of weather, which is true. So, yeah. yes, um, hypothermia is definitely a problem for livestock. We were talking about that a week ago at our company, uh, Weather Watch, to give farmers plenty of time to... Um, be prepared for this event. As for humans, um, yeah, I mean, if you're sitting outside with a T-shirt on for the next 48 hours, that's mm. not good. No. So for, for homeless people, it's definitely an issue. Mm. Um, but, you know, in New Zealand, we don't really have a lot of problems with people sitting outside all, all night in cold blast. So it's more about the livestock 
and lambs, and uh, especially in the South Island where lambing's really only just underway. Hey, thanks, Philip. Philip Duncan joining us there from Weather Watch on that uh, frosty blast that is making its way up the country. Uh, Meanwhile, the fallout from the cancellation of the Auckland leg of the Armageddon Expo continues with vendors saying they've been left thousands of dollars out of pocket, an ongoing legal battle involving Auckland's ASB showgrounds uh, in the plug being pulled on the Expo scheduled for Labour Weekend, and no alternative venue could be found. Reporter Leonard Powell spoke to some of those affected. We've spent the last two and a half years just battling through things, and I think everybody just thought, okay, we can finally get to whatever the new normal is going to be, and we'll move forward. And then here we are just sitting back and you know, having the rug pulled out from under us at the last minute. That's Armageddon director Bill Gerritz, who started the expo back in 1995. Over the years, it's seen Game of Thrones superstar Jason Momoa Doctor Who's Jenna Coleman and Harry Potter's Tom Felton, better known as Draco Malfoy. Now, the future of the successful four-day expo is uncertain after Mr Gerritz made a call last weekend to cancel this year's Auckland event. The ASB showgrounds in Auckland's Green Lane is the city's only venue with the capacity to hold it, but instead of showcasing pop culture icons from around the world, it will sit empty, as its owners seek to lease the land to a film company instead. That decision is being challenged in the High Court by Brent Spillane of XPO Exhibitions, but Armageddon won't be able to go ahead regardless of the outcome. Mr Gerritz says he's often asked why they don't just move Armageddon to somewhere like Mystery Creek in Hamilton, but it's not that easy. It's purely location. It's location, location, location. A third of the population is in one space, that's where we need to be. And when we can't do it, everything else suffers because we don't have the budget, we don't have the resources, and we have to re-watch everything we're doing. We're finally at the point where I thought we were rocketing ahead, and instead I've got to play it a little safer, and I've got to maybe slow walk what we're hoping to do. Mr Gerritz says he feels for the vendors and fans who are missing out. Everybody suffers. I mean, I've got... Hundreds of exhibitors that are that were desperate for us to do this. They, they hung in there with us, and we we kept them updated, we kept them informed, and in the end, they they were there right beside us, ready to do the show, and nothing. So, and that alone speaks to the desperation that I think a lot of them were feeling. And uh, and I'm, it's heart wrenching that we couldn't deliver for them because we certainly wanted to. One of those vendors is Sani Gregory Moore who creates handmade art toys such as plush dolls and long furbies. Sani says vendors like them rely on the Auckland show to get through a tough period of the year. Everything kind of dies out after Christmas for a couple of months when everyone's spent all their money and, you know, going away to festivals and stuff. So we rely on the income from Armageddon to be able to get through that time. Now they have to rethink about how to make back that lost revenue. We'd planned all of our markets in the year around this, so... I threw off our whole calendar. We were instantly like having to push things and pull things, apply to different markets, and then applying to those bigger different markets, having to then wonder if we'd have to pull out of like smaller mm-hmm. passion markets like gallery projects and stuff. Fellow vendor Annabelle Temperton has sold jewellery and prints at Armageddon for the past four expos. She says the artists affected have banded together by promoting one another's work online. We worked on a big like link tree filled with every artist that was meant to be at Auckland get in linked to their stores and Instagrams and stuff like that. It's really wholesome and sweet and everyone's sharing everyone's work and yelling about each other. Mm-hmm. Just kind of communally grieving while also hyping everyone up. 
Kellen Werger has had a stall at the Armageddon Expo for five years. I usually make around about four to six thousand dollars in those four days. Sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less, depending. So for an artist, that's, that's quite a bit of, of, of money, just an all-in-one go to lose out on. The illustrator sells art, prints, stickers and keychains, based mostly around fantasy and the popular Dungeons & Dragons game. They say the cancellation is bad news for all concerned. I mean, it's not going to be just a bloater to the people who do Armageddon. It, there's, I know there's many events that happen in that space, and there isn't really anywhere else like it in Auckland. You know, people come from out of town to come to these events. It kind of doesn't feel fair for it to just sit empty like that. And it's not just the vendors who are upset. The four-day expo pulls in over 60,000 attendees. Jerrica Teer, who has been a cosplayer for the past decade, has been attending since she was a kid. It's a big part of my life. Uh, cosplay is probably my main hobby. I love to dress up as characters. My mum does it with me sometimes. I've dragged friends into it. It's Much of my calendar year is based around it, and Armageddon is, of course, the premier event. Cosplay is one of the major draws of the expo, and Jerrica says thousands of people attend dressed up as their favourite characters. They could be from movies, comics, shows or books. Anything goes, and sought-after cosplay prizes are up for grabs. To lose this is heartbreaking. It's the highlight of my year, and it's so, so sad to see it go. The future of the ASB showgrounds remains unclear, as the High Court appeal continues. Right, Parliament is about to debate a proposal to ban alcohol sponsorship in sports and give local councils the power... To control how liquor is sold, the National and Act parties have already indicated they will be block voting against this member's bill. So its success will depend upon Labour's caucus, who are expected to be able to vote uh, to vote according to their conscience. Well, joining me now is the MP behind the bill, Chloe Swarbrick of the Green Party and Auckland Central. Good morning to you. Morena, didn't expect it to be as controversial as it is space policy, <laughs> let, but here let, we are. Let, let's start with uh, Nicola Willis's comments on our show yesterday, basically telling us she's worried about grassroots sport and basically it losing out because of its reliance on sponsorship from alcohol companies. What do you say to that? Yeah, first thing I'd say is that I'm really gutted to see the exact same arguments from the National Party recycled over the past year. I've tried to engage with various spokespeople who have written, you know, in excess of a dozen emails and letters and had meetings with people and keep getting the same recycled arguments. So, look, the best evidence that we have is from Alcohol Health Watch, which surveyed grassroots sports teams in Tamaki Makoto uh, and over 101 rugby teams in Auckland. Only three had alcohol branding on their kit. None of the 40 rugby league teams had any on their kid. Grassroots sports, frankly, isn't the excuse that politicians and the industry continue to argue that it is. And I've also continued to ask the sports, the alcohol and the advertising industries to give the most up-to-date figures, but none of them have and none of them will. But most estimate that it's less than it was in 2014 when Sir Graham Lowe recommended, as the chair of the ministerial forum commissioned by the then national government, Mm. uh, for us to move towards ending alcohol advertising in sport. So we've been having this argument for 10 years. let's, Let's move the into the professional game, right? Because um, we've, on the other hand, got Grant Robertson expressing similar concerns, but more about the sustainability of funding around sports and venues. Um, We know, of course, that it's fairly entrenched in the professional game and they would have to make up shortfalls. So 
How do we fill that void, do you think? Yeah, great question, and one which I've tried to respond as well to Minister Robertson on. Um, and to that effect, there are effectively two proposals, one of which was recommended in the Law Commission 2010 or 11 report and the Ministerial Forum from 2014, uh, which again were picked up in the Hiara Oranga, the Mental Health and Addiction Inquiry, and the Safe and Effective Justice Review reported to Robertson's government. But one of those levers could be to do a kind of smoke-free environments levy uh, and kind of fund, which would be targeted, and help that phase out period. The second could be using a levy which actually already exists and that would be an increase in recycling that funding of around two cents per can of beer and around six cents per bottle of wine. So both of those options are available to the minister and to the government and I've written to them to that effect asking for meetings to make these proposals really clear. You use the smoke-free example though, right? And that is traditionally applied in a local uh, non-professional sports context. But when it pertains to the professional game, do you believe believe something like that is going to make up what could be a pretty considerable sport uh, uh, shortfall here given how prevalent alcohol advertising is this takes me back to that key point which is that unfortunately we continue to have these really amorphous arguments put up about the supposed value of this alcohol advertising and sponsorship in sport but nobody is it is it supposed in the context of professional sports though well, again, if we just uh, survey what's been um, playing out in our professional and broadcast sports, which, as you rightly say, is the target of this bill, we're looking at, you know, over the past few years, the All Blacks, the Black Caps, the ASB Classic, the Crusaders, Hurricanes, Chiefs, etc. A lot of super rugby and some cricket in there. Uh, but the most up-to-date figures we have are from 2014, where it was around $20 million. Uh, the best indications that I have had from the alcohol, advertising and sports sector is all saying that that has probably reduced, but they're not willing, able or capable of giving me the most up-to-date figures. But to that effect, we do know mm. that there are those two levers available, either that recycling uh, in a similar way to the levy that presently already exists mm. or the creation of that smoke-free type of fund. Mm. Hey, thanks, Chloe. Uh, Chloe Swarbrick there, whoever's, who, who is, of course, behind that bill. We would love to talk to you more about that, and I'm sure we'll have you on across RNZ uh, at some stage, because it is a big and important issue. Just before we go, I'm slapping myself on the wrist this morning. I said no other New Zealand golfers in the top 30 since Michael Campbell. Lydia Ko, duh. We love Lydia, friend of the show. Here's Morning Report.